So apparently, 2010 was a year of unprecedented natural disasters. And uh, in fact, 500,000 people died this year as a direct result of natural disasters. Now, of 7.5, 8 billion people, that's only 0.007% of the world's population. But nonetheless, if 500,000 people have died because of natural disasters, that's pretty impressive. And let's go together some of the highlights. Maybe we'll, uh, we should call them lowlights for sure. But let's just go through, remember some of these with me together. The biggest one, the one that took 220,000 people right off the bat, was, of course, the Haiti earthquake. A less popular, uh, a less, one that was not popularized as much in the media here, but was the floods in Pakistan. Do you know that floods in Pakistan have affected 12 million people? Now, only 1,500 died from them, but to this day, there are still millions that are homeless because of this incredible flooding that happened in Pakistan. In Chile, which we just prayed for this, this evening, there was an earthquake uh, earlier in the year. 723 people died, and 300,000 homes were damaged. And you know that on that day, the geologists have kind of figured out for us that the Earth Day was shortened Because of the seismic activity, our day was shortened by 1.26 microseconds. Now, microsecond is just one one millionth of a second, so you probably didn't notice it that day when the earthquake happened, that your sleep was shorter or whatever, but that's kind of bizarre. And add to that fact the reality that the earth was displaced from its axis by 8 centimeters when that earthquake happened. Now, I don't know if it has come back 8 centimeters or not. I'm not clear by what I read, what exactly happened. But that's kind of wild stuff. You remember in the summer that wildfires ravaged Russia and that 15,000 people died as a result of the wildfires in Russia. And I don't know how they figured this out, but they said the heat in Russia during the summer was such that um, they hadn't seen in a millennium. And I don't know, I I know we haven't been recording temperatures for a thousand years, but somehow they figured that out. I'm just reporting. And of course you remember, no one died because of this, but remember in late summer we had the uh, volcano in Iceland that erupted. And some of you who are traveling to Europe, uh, that was hard because North Europe just got slowed down. Air traffic could not really happen there, and that was tough. Also, back in the summer, remember that summer here in South America, it's winter, and that in Peru, which is normally warm, they had temperatures down into the negative 20 centigrade, and actually 500 people died in Peru because they weren't ready for such cold winters. And here we are at year's end, year's beginning in Australia. There's still flooding that's the worst in decades. And if you look over the kind of list of natural disasters, there's just tons of floods this year, and it's crazy. Now, why am I painting this terrible picture for 2010? I have to say I'm a little bit sober tonight. Because although Time Magazine would call someone like me, they would call me, um, they would call what I'm giving you right now some end-time rhetoric. You know, the end-is-nigh rhetoric is what they would call it. But when I read these statistics, several scriptures come to mind. Not the least of which is one that Jesus said when he was helping his disciples figure out what are the end times going to be like. He said this. This is Luke 21. He says, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events, and great signs from heaven. Jesus made it very clear that some crazy stuff, some cataclysmic stuff was going to happen as things got wrapped up in in history. 
But the good news is, Jesus didn't leave the disciples, and he doesn't leave us there. He says this, continue in Luke 21. He says, be careful. This is word to you and me tonight. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Heavy stuff, but good stuff. And I have to say that one of my duties is to warn. You know, when Paul was was, um, explaining to the elders that he was leaving Ephesus kind of what he had done and what they're going to do, he said, hey, one of the things I need to do is warn, and I, I need to warn. And so I come with a little bit of a warning today. And how it's a warning that I'm heeding Also, because as I begin 2011, I'm beginning with a great sobriety, saying, Jesus, I want to be a part of all that you're doing. And I don't want to miss anything you're doing. I want to get my life in order. I have places that I'm not real excited about in my life because of sin. And there's places that I'm so excited because I see where you're working. And I say, thank you, Lord. And just, God, thank you that I have another day to repent and get with you and just say, Jesus, I want to be all that you want me to be. So one of the things that I do and uh, we talked about this at length last year at this time, is I try to get some time with the Lord as I begin a new year. And I say, God, you know, I, I have this um, practice that I like to do. I just take a retreat and I say, Jesus, let's, let me just figure out who are you calling me to be and um, what are you calling me to do? And I would encourage you to do the same thing. I would highly encourage you. If you can take a retreat and just get some time with the Lord. And if you're super busy with a kind of corporate schedule, you know what you can do? You can take a Saturday morning at Starbucks and uh, just try to be isolated. Maybe you can put your earbuds in and just say, okay, God, who are you calling me to be? What are you calling me to do? How can I participate in all that you want me to be doing and, and whatnot? Just taking stock. And let it not just be a, um, hey, here's my 10 goals for 2011, but let it be, God, what are you saying about my life? And I want to encourage you to do that. that uh, this kind of retreat or this kind of prayer would be what someone like John Wesley, a guy, a reformer in the Anglican Church, Church of England in the 1700s, who later birthed the Methodist movement, he would call this a means of grace. In other words, it's, we, we get grace from God, but when we pray and we take time to seek Him, it's a way that we can get His grace, how we can get apprehended by God. We get apprehended through, through His sovereign grace, but it comes sometimes by prayer and other things. And tonight, it's so appropriate for us at the beginning of 2011 to talk about a particular means of grace and it's a means of grace that we as an evangelical kind of charismatic church do. We participate in it, but we often don't know a whole lot about it. And so my desire tonight is to have us um, learn enough about this means of grace that when we respond at the end of this service tonight, it will be with great faith that God's going to touch us in a very special way. And of course, that means of grace that I'm talking about is communion. We're going to talk about communion tonight. Again, historically... We have not had good teaching on it. And I want us to get some decent teaching so that as we come to take communion tonight, it'll be with the same faith that we come to with our altar calls. Because by the way, just a little history lesson, the altar calls that we do, and we invite you up to pray and get prayer, that's really a recent development in church history. It was only really the revivalists kind of in 1800s that started this um, for, for, often it was just for, for um, convenience's sake, they kind of had this, hey, raise your hand if you want to get saved, or come forward and let me pray for you. That is really only a recent development. But of course, as we know, the Lord's Supper 
has been around since Jesus. And my point is this. When we come to respond and we say, God, you know, I, I want to get prayer. I need this. It's often with great faith that God's going to do something. But often when we come to communion, we come with just a, hey, we're just doing this because I know we do it and the Lord said to do it. And that is a good enough reason to do anything if Jesus tells us to do something. But there really is some stuff we can learn about us. Let's learn together about getting apprehended by God through the, through the right, through the sacrament. Sacrament is just an outward sign of an inward grace of communion. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 11. We'll start up in 17. We'll see God, what God has to say to us. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11. We'll be focusing primarily on 23 through 26, excuse me. But let's start up in 17 so we can kind of get the flow of what Paul is talking about. Remember in this letter, Paul is responding to a letter or some letters he's received from his, the church that he helped plant in Corinth. And he is, has some pretty intense things to say about how they do worship. It's in that flow that we pick up at 17. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. Because he did have praise for another thing earlier. He said, hey, how you guys do this is good. But how you guys do this is not good. For your meetings do more harm than good. Wow. I hope no one says that about a faith group that I lead. Your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, verse 18, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. A little tongue-in-cheek from Paul. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have any homes to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. And of course, Paul is describing something that looks pretty different from how we celebrate communion. Some people have called it the love feast or the agape feast. The church would get together and eat together and also celebrate the Lord's Supper as we do. And as you can see, they didn't have the right attitude about it because there was this carousing, there was drunkenness and whatnot, and just not a proper attitude about celebrating the Lord's Supper, which, of course, grieves God. And the divisions, you know, earlier Paul had kind of chastised them for saying, hey, you know, you guys have these divisions because you think, well, I got baptized by Apollos. You know, I, got, I was led to Christ by Paul, so, you know, I'm this, I'm that. And he said, hey, that's not going to cut it in the body of Christ. For us, we do well to heed the, the warning that we should be one. We need to be unified. We need to be uh, together. and We need to deal with divisions in our midst. And I'll get to that shortly. Let's move on to the, the bulk here in 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it. When he had given thanks, many people have asked me, some of you have Anglican or Catholic church backgrounds, you've asked me, where does the word Eucharist come from? Because, of course, in the Catholic and the Anglican church, they celebrate the Eucharist. Well, the good news is that word Eucharist comes right here from giving thanks. That's the word, that's where Eucharist comes from. It's a giving thanks. And it's the same Eucharist that Jesus pronounced when he did the miracles of providing, you know, turning the fish and loaves, kind of multiplying the bread. You know, when he fed 3,000, 5,000, 7,000, he did it having given thanks. It's the same word. He, he blessed it. He gave thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he did this. Of course, they were celebrating Passover. And in the same way that Passover had been celebrated for centuries, remembering how God had delivered the people of Israel, Jesus was saying, do this in remembrance of me. This will become a pattern for you. Moving on, verse 25. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, he's saying there's a new covenant. Well, what was the old covenant? The old covenant, as you remember, there are a lot of things we could say about kind of several different old covenants. But primarily, the old covenant was the system of sacrifices that God had set up so people could commune with God, right? The way that the people of Israel had relationship with God was by following a pretty strict, pretty detailed regiment of animal sacrifices so they could commune with God. And Jesus is following right in the same thing, right? By this sacrifice, this is how you're going to commune with the living God. This is how you're going to have a relationship with me. You're going to do it by my body and by my blood, broken and shed for you. And so we reenact the Lord's sacrifice and we commune with God. Now, there's only, to my knowledge, and um, feel free, by the way, to shout it out. I'm not, just, I'm not just saying that. But to my knowledge, I know we have some scholars here, the only place where the word new covenant, the words new covenant are mentioned in the Old Testament is Jeremiah. And so, waiting. Okay, so far so good. <coughs> Anyone, if you use your PDAs and your devices and you find another place, let me know. But as far as I can tell, the place in the Old Testament where a new covenant is mentioned is Jeremiah 31. And I just am willing to bet that Jesus had this very thing in mind as he was instituting the new covenant. And let's look in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and following. I'm just going to mention to you a few highlights of what this new covenant was supposed to be. And so when we take communion tonight, you can know this is what's going on. There's a holy transaction between you and God that's going to be happening as you take communion. And here's some elements of it. In Jeremiah 31, prophesying of a time to come. Jeremiah said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Ooh, there's division. Some of this covenant is going to bring people together. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. You know that God, that's what God wants to do with you and in me. He wants to write his law on your mind, in your heart. As we partake of communion tonight, you can rest assured that God is doing a transforming work that only He can do. I don't know about you, but I need a transformation. My flesh is still my flesh, and it will always be my flesh. But by the grace of God, I can get transformed and live a holy life, an impossible life, by the grace of God. It happens because God is willing to write His law on my heart and on my mind, and that's what I need. That's what happens 
as we partake of the elements of communion. I will put my law on their mind and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will all know me. And this is just the key for me, is that we get to be friends with God. You know, in John 1, Jesus said, hey, you get to be sons of God. You get to be children of God if you get to know him. And so as we partake of communion, know that this holy transaction is going on. You're a child of God's, and God's willing to be your God. There's fellowship and relationship. And, of course, the whole basis for it is this very last thing, because he says, I'll forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So you can bet there's an element of forgiveness happening when we take the Lord's Supper. We get forgiven. For whenever you eat this bread, this is verse 26, for whenever, you, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Not just in a simple morning way, although I think it is important for us to grapple with the passion of Jesus, the fact that he did, you know, he was tortured and died on a cross. We want to get in touch with that passion, but there's also hope. We celebrate communion, there's hope. We're celebrating the fact that Jesus is coming again. Let's move on to 27 and the rest, and I'll just say a brief word about this. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now remember, the issue with the Corinthians was they had, you know, there's drunkenness and carousal and just unkindness in their meetings. He goes on to say, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And I invite you to do the same thing. Before we come and take communion, you examine yourself. Say, God, what are you doing in me? You know, where are you focusing your attention on me? Where do I need to change? You do that. Where am I not in right fellowship with a brother or sister? And you want to attend to that. There's plenty of scripture that backs up the fact that if you're not in right relationship with a brother or sister, fix it. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Here's this real deal. He's saying, hey, you guys, because you guys are treating the Lord's Supper like nothing. Some of you are dying because of it. You're just putting judgment on yourself. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. And just remember that from Proverbs, right? The Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. So let the Lord discipline you, you know, as you come up. Say, Lord, where are you working in me? What needs to change? 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other, right? This is kind of in that agape feast context, which happens more in our faith groups or when we decide to have a potluck. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. And we can rest assured that those directions weren't so major that we've missed it in the church, like we've missed something about communion. All that we need to know, we have. <clears throat> on Christmas Eve, it was fun for Kelsey and I to go to the church that she grew up at. And we went to Midnight Mass. So actually it was first thing Christmas morning at midnight. We went to the Midnight Mass, and um, it was wonderful. And uh, I, um, out of respect for the church, I did not participate in communion because the understanding of that church, and this is just of the Catholic Church, and I'm not here to bash the Catholic Church at all, but the understanding there is that you can only take communion there if you've taken First Communion or been confirmed in the Catholic Church. So not wanting to offend any sensibilities, I didn't take of communion. But I can just assure you that there is an incredible longing in my heart for the presence of Christ that comes through this mysterious 
thing that we do at communion. And it's really great because it's really just, now it's just been totally prolonged because that was Christmas Eve. And then we didn't have church last Sunday. Now here I am and I'm like, I might push some of you out of the way to get the elements if you don't mind. Because I just, you know, I just really want to partake in communion because God's ordained it. And I need the presence of God, the power of God. As I mentioned for 2011, I just am wanting it so much. Now in the Catholic Church, they believe in transubstantiation, right? They believe that as you partake of the body and the blood of Christ, it becomes physically the flesh of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. And their reasoning actually is right from this passage we just read where Jesus says, this is my body, you know? We have a problem with it. I would say I have kind of a problem with it because I, I haven't, it hasn't happened. You know, when I've partaken of communion, I don't all of a sudden taste human flesh or it's not tasting like the blood that I've tasted when I, say, lick a wound or something, which I don't do all the time, from time to time. <laughs> And, you know, the kind of the, maybe the more academic argument is, you know, when Jesus said, this is my body, he was still alive. So it wasn't like he was giving them a piece of his body and saying, here, you know. Again, I'm not here to bash, bash the Catholic Church, but I'm just trying to give a little, a little spectrum here. So here's one end of the spectrum as far as, you know, because people have killed each other over this very thing that we're talking about. Historically, people have gotten really mad and hurt each other over some of this stuff. So we have transubstantiation over, transubstantiation over here. really becomes the body of Christ. Then you have kind of a strong reaction. Um, a guy named Zwingli. He was one of the reformers. He was a, a contemporary of Martin Luther, a Swiss guy. And I remember the reformers were, they were reacting strongly to what they saw as just an exaggerated sacramental system in the Catholic Church. In other words, kind of the idea that, hey, just do the sacraments. You don't really have to be born again. You just do this and you're, you, know, you got your fire insurance. So Zwingli had a strong reaction. He said, no, no, no. When we take communion, it's merely a memorial. You know, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. You know, like we go to Veterans Day or Memorial Day service or, a, you know, and there's 21 gun salute and you're just remembering these people who died. So Wengeli says we're just remembering what Christ did, which it does have value. It's not bad to remember what Christ has done. But I would posit, and I think that a lot of the church with me posits that there is more than that. That when we partake of communion, there is, by the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in a special way. Not physical, but spiritual. And there is just an identifying with Christ that is mysterious and wonderful. And I can't think of a better way to explain this mystery than by a hymn that Charles Wesley wrote. I mentioned John Wesley, who, again, 1700s England, set out to really just get the Anglican Church on fire. And he, um, by accident, started the Methodist movement. But his brother Charles was an incredible hymn writer. And sadly, there's a whole body of hymns that never made it over to America because the Methodist Church also was huge and in revival in America in, in colonial times in the 1700s and as we got our independence. But this whole body of hymns that didn't get here were ones that Charles had written just for communion because as they were giving communion, the Methodist Church kind of attracted maybe not the brightest, sharpest tax in the world. I mean, so it's great, uh, you know, and in the kingdom of God, it's always seems to be um, the kingdom of God is often an upside-down kingdom. In other words, it's not always the guys with three degrees that get the gospel all the time. It's often the poor and the kind of unpretentious that get it. So as a result, since most of the people who are coming to Christ weren't, you know, some weren't literate, Charles wrote a body of hymns so that when they took communion, they could understand what was going on. And here's one of them. And actually, I'm going to ask you to say it with me. Why don't I just go down here so we can all see it. Let's, let's just say it together. Oh, the depth of love divine, the unfathomable grace. Who shall say how bread and wine God into man conveys? 
how the bread his flesh imparts, how the wine transmits the blood, fills the faithful people's hearts with all the life of God. Let the wisest mortal show how we the grace receive, feeble elements bestow, a power not theirs to give. Who explains the wondrous way? How through these the virtue came. These the virtue did convey, yet still remained the same. Do you get it? He's talking about, you know, this is still just bread and, and wine, or in our case, grape juice, but some power is released, and it's great. Let's keep reading. Sure and real is the grace. The manner be unknown. Only meet us in thy ways and perfect us in one. Unity. Let us taste the heavenly powers. Lord, we ask for nothing more. Thine to bless, tis only ours to wonder and adore. I'm just getting touched by the power of God as we read this because I just, it's what I need. It's what you need. We just need God's presence and God's ordained it that it be a special release of his presence through communion. I want to touch briefly on, on some history because what I want to bring to our attention again is as a church, we do kind of come out of this charismatically, evangelically background. And so we, um, we, we just need a better theology of communion is what we're doing today. So just a little history about how the Lord's Supper has played a part in revival. And the cool thing is it's played a part in revival in all sorts of different streams. And so one stream, if I, you know, the reform stream. Remember, these are, again, they're, they're responding to the Catholic Church saying, we want to reform things. And the reform stream, so that like, um, kind of, if you looked at the Beverly phone book, you'd put in the reform stream some of the Presbyterian churches, and who else? Who else do you put in the reform stream? Okay, congregational, because are, are they kind of more Calvinist? And bent? Okay, Awesome. So some of those guys. The cool thing is that even in this, or not even, but in this stream, there are plenty of revivals that happened at the Lord's table. And one in particular that's really noteworthy is in the 1600s, the Scottish Presbyterian Church, they started these things where they called them the communion cycles. What would happen was they would get together in the summer because that was the good season where people could kind of move about. And uh, the, the priest or the minister, I should say, would come to celebrate communion at a church. And about eight or ten other congregations nearby would come because the pastor supply was sparse. The ones who could really officiate over the communion were sparse. And so they'd gather. And what would happen is it would turn into this whole weekend event where Friday the pastor would come and he'd preach on the meaning of communion and repentance. You know, the, the kind of the, 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 the backbone of our faith that we're saved, you know, by faith. It's through grace, by faith that we're saved. And they'd preach this. Then on Saturday, they would let people get right with each other. Because just as we read, you know, the problem with taking communion when you're not right with your brother and your sister is serious. So we'd let them get, repent and do all that and get right with each other. Sunday, they'd celebrate communion. And the power of God would show up in such a wonderful way that usually they'd hang around until Monday. And, uh, you know, like thousands of people would be hanging out. And one of the biggest ones, it was like they were expecting 5,000, but they got 30,000 people showed up at one of these events. And I mean, can you imagine administering the Lord's Supper and things like that? It's crazy. But not only the Reformed tradition, but then in the Wesleyan tradition also. And if we looked in the phone book today, it'd be your Methodist church, your Wesley church, your Church of the Nazarene, because the whole kind of holiness movement. These guys, too, experienced a lot of revival with the Lord's Supper. And that was no problem for them, because, of course, Wesley himself, John Wesley, was an Anglican priest. And so Anglican, the Church of England, by their own um, 
calling, they called themselves kind of the Via Media, the middle way, where they were trying to bridge the gap between the Catholic Church, which had a great theology of the Eucharist, and the Reformed Church, which had good things to it. They were obviously trying to reform things and get back to, you know, only Scripture and things like that. And the Anglican Church walked this middle way. And, and the best Anglican in the world was John Wesley, and, um, which is awesome because he, he had no problem making sure that the sacraments were a part of everything that they did. And so the whole Methodist movement was really built around, yes, you know, salvation by faith, credited to us as righteousness, grace of God alone. But we celebrated the, the elements. We celebrated communion as a part of an, one of these means of grace. And then we get into kind of where have we been in the last few centuries? Or maybe I should say, yeah, late 1800s, early 1900s. Now, some cool things that have happened in the 20th century is we've seen a lot of people come to Christ in, in, in situations where there was no Lord's Supper, like Reinhard Bonnke or maybe Billy Graham. You know, Billy Graham, by the way, he had a great interview on Fox um, last week. It was really awesome. Really awesome. Just check out Fox and um, see, see if you can get his interview. But Billy Graham has probably seen hundreds of thousands, if not millions, come to Christ, but not make a profession of faith at least. But not there's the Lord's table is not at his at his um, meetings. Or Reinhard Bonnke is this German evangelist who, at one meeting in Benin in, in West Africa, six hundred thousand people gathered. Two hundred thousand people made professions of faith in Christ. Now, how are you going to distribute? that there, except by miraculous provision of God. I mean, I guess maybe he should have tried it, but he didn't. But here's what I'm saying is, it seems like in revivals on the earth today, there's been plenty of revival without the Lord's Supper. And I'm just, I would make the case, and I'm just really parroting um, a book by a guy named uh, D. Ortega. His name is William D. Ortega. He's written a book called Forgotten Power, which um, Angela Yarian so graciously gave me too many months ago. And he just says this. He says, so yeah, you know, there's incredible revivals going on. But the great thing about Billy Graham, the great thing about Reinhard Bonnke is they are always really conscious to get people plugged into local churches where they do serve the Lord's Supper regularly. And I would say that's the model we, we want. And I want to give two other models for us that are really important. The first being, because we want, we, want always, we want to always go back to Scripture. Okay, God, what are you saying about the Lord's Supper? And I'd say we can draw greatly from the Chronicles, from the Old Testament, First and Second Chronicles is a chronicle of these cycles of Israel falling and then being revived. And you notice that every time that Israel gets revived, like a leader repents and the people comes back to Israel, it's a revival, yes, of the heart. People come back to the Lord with all their heart, but it's also a revival of that old covenant that that we mentioned before. There's a revival of the sacramental system that was in place. And for them, it was that that system of, of sacrifices. And notice that both happened. When they got right with God, they got right with God sacramentally, and they got right with God in their hearts. Fast forward to Acts, Acts 2, right? When the church is birthed, right? And 3,000 people come to Christ after Peter preaches. We see this incredible snapshot of the church in Acts 2, 42 and following that we mention a lot here. But it says they were meeting together. You know, they were listening to the apostles' teaching. And they met together house to house and in the temple courts. And they broke bread together. And that's a, you know, that's pretty, I would say it's a decent reference to kind of this agape feast, Lord's Supper thing that we've been talking about. And so there is a sacramental part to it also. And maybe lastly I'd say this, that when I look at the body of Christ, it would be great to get Jonathan Frizz's 
thoughts on this here today. But when we look at the body of Christ, we see a great convergence happening today. What I mean by this is we take like the evangelical stream. Remember, that's a stream that says scripture and says you're saved by faith through grace. You know, that's it. That's evangelical. Charismatic, right? We need the Holy Ghost. We need his power. We need his gifts. Ah, right? By the way, we've seen some wonderful things happen here. I was just telling our people praying beforehand that in December, we saw several words of knowledge come true where someone had a word of knowledge. We prayed for them and they got healed as far as some of that physical healing stuff. So we need that stream. Then we've got this whole sacramental stream that has something that we need. And we're honestly, we're just a little bit weak in our movement. And we're trying to um, strengthen that. And that's what we're just doing tonight. What I see in the body of Christ is a great convergence happening. Where that the evangelical charismaticies are saying, wow, we need to get back sacramental. And it's great. I can think of several churches just anecdotally that I visited where they feel like a harbor, but like they have communion regularly. And it's wonderful. Then you've got like our neighbor across the way there, Christ the Redeemer, totally Anglican church, celebrating the Eucharist every time they meet. But there's also just a real sense of the power of God, you know, and the presence of God. And people are getting touched there, and it's wonderful. It's excellent. So I guess my invitation just tonight is, is um, we want a solid theology of communion. And what that, tra- what that, what that is going to translate into is an, uh, an increase in faith, like I want you to come to the communion table expecting the presence and the power of God in your life. And the result is going to be, we're going to get revived, and I really think that it's going to be a part of revival that's coming. In other words, God transforming Beverly, the North Shore, New England. I think God really wants to visit New England in a powerful way. And as we kind of get all these streams working together, the sacramental, the evangelical, the charismatic, it's going to be a wonderful thing that God does. We need it all. Amen? Amen. Let's rise together, and I'll invite the worship team up and um, the ushers who are helping me celebrate communion. We're going to pray a prayer together, but um, before you... Don't lose yourself in the screen yet. I just want to review for us. As you come to the communion table, believing God to apprehend you, you come in several ways. First, we come in thanksgiving for what God has done. It's appropriate for you to meditate on the passion of Christ. Second, I want you to come in a real expectation that God is going to impart to you these new covenant promises, the very things that he talked about in Jeremiah 31, right? He wants to impart to you the forgiveness of sins. He wants to impart to you the power of God for fellowship with Him. He wants to impart to you an ability to abide and remain in Him. And God's going to strengthen you for, the, for what you need and for your life. Just believe that, that that's happening now. And I would say this. You know, there's been another reason that people have killed each other in history is about, like, who's allowed to do this right now, okay? So this is what I'm going to say. Anyone who, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, then you come and partake. And I would, I would also go with several... Um, Others who would say, if there's even faith in your heart that God wants to bless you, you might be here and you may not be a believer in Jesus Christ, but I'm going to say this table is open to you, and here's the reason. The reason is because historically, many people have gotten converted at this table. They've experienced Jesus in a way they never had before. I mean, normally they came out of like, like a nominal Christian culture, not, like, not unlike the United States, in other words, where they, they know some of the 
you know, they've heard about Jesus before and they know some things, but they come to the table and they get radically changed. They get converted. So, I mean, listen, if you have faith that God wants to bless you tonight by taking these elements, you're welcome to this table. But also, if you feel uncomfortable because you're not a believer and you're saying, hey, I don't want to participate in this, then don't come. But just, I would just use the time to say, God, are you real? You know, show me that you're real. What do I believe in you? What do I, what do I believe about you? Amen? Amen. Let's pray this together. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. And we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world, until Christ comes in final victory, and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. Amen.